From Korea, I'm Amira Jiwa. And I'm Duncan Griffith Nakanishi. And welcome to Korea's Workshop Podcast. Every two weeks, Workshop breaks down one essential business topic and explains how it could be useful for you. Our goal is to get you just the right amount of info to help you apply what we're talking about to what you're working on. I'll be speaking to experts with practical tips and founders with relevant experience. And I'll be explaining essential terms and summarizing the key takeaways at the end of the show. Today, we're talking about user research, which is all about understanding the behaviors, needs, and attitudes of your customers. It needs to be part of your product development process because it is what will help you develop a solution that really meets people's needs. Whether you use focus groups or surveys, user research is all about talking to people and getting their input. But it's also about observing people so you can get to the heart of what they really mean and what they're really looking for. You know, observed is great because you actually get to see behavior sort of unfiltered without any bias. I spend most of my time thinking about stuff like that, which is like, what are people's actions telling us they really want, not asking people what they want. Our expert guest today is Lucy Morris from boutique qualitative research agency Spinach. Lucy is going to talk us through building a qualitative research process that will help you generate useful and actionable insights to inform your products. Qual is just jargon for qualitative research. That's all about understanding the why and what's going on underneath the surface, what motivates people, nitty gritty detail that kind of explains human motivation or human experience. And it's often contrasted with quantitative research, which is all about measuring and kind of scoping and understanding the nature of things at a kind of more of a surface broad level. Qualitative is more about the kind of getting it behind the surface and really understanding something in depth. And they're brilliant together. They work really well together um, as a kind of perfect complement. So what does qualitative research look like? In qualitative research, really, we're either observing something or interviewing somebody or interviewing a few people at the same time. So you may have heard of focus groups, so that's when we gather people together normally or historically, it's been face-to-face. So in a room together, having a chat. And from a product perspective, we might have products there as stimulus material for people to kind of tell us their impressions. And then if it's a one-on-one interview, that might happen in their home or it might happen via Zoom or whatever now. Or we might bring them into um, a central facility to have a chat with them about something. So there's lots of different ways of engaging people. But broadly, that's what we're doing. We're either watching people or talking to them or getting them to interact with each other as well as the product. You know, and why is investing time in, in this kind of research important? People are constantly surprising in terms of the way that they perceive things and the way that they experience things. It's very easy to get caught up in your own perspective as a product developer or someone with a new brand. Also be very enthusiastic about something, already have a lot of knowledge that you take for granted, but there's nothing that beats putting something in someone's hands who has no experience of that brand or product or is very set in their ways and seeing what they do with it and what they think of it. And you'll, you'll be surprised how much there could be a massive difference there in terms of what you were expecting would happen versus what actually happens. At what stage in the product development process should companies use qualitative research? Well, with new product development, it varies. So sometimes it can be right at the very beginning when they're trying to explore an opportunity and understand a kind of consumer context or a market picture or a category a bit more. So that's kind of really front end exploratory work. Sometimes they're a bit further along and they've got some ideas, but they're very much work in progress and they need nurturing. And sometimes they're kind of closer to launch and they need sort of 
fine-tuning, you know, so that they kind of have their best chance of success when they hit the market. So qualitative research, because it's really about that in-depth insight I talked about, it can come in at any of those three moments along a kind of product development journey. And how many people should they be looking to talk to? How many is is a hard question to answer with Qual because it really depends on who your target is. And often you might want to talk to, I don't know, core users of your product or brand, competitor users. You might want to talk to lapsed users. You might want to think about other variables like gender, age, life stage, social class. There might be psychographics in there, like you might be recruiting to a certain sort of attitude or lifestyle. Time for the first definition. Psychographics is a method of studying consumers based on their interests, opinions and emotions. There's lots of different ways of thinking about who your target audience are and framing them. And it's very rare to only ever have a single target. And people don't normally feel comfortable speaking to very, very, very small samples. So I don't know if it was one particular variable and we were talking about in-depth interviews, so single people here in a session, I would be wanting to do probably a minimum of three on a single variable. Any tips for making these sessions as productive as possible? I think with product development, the most important is to place products with people and get them using them, ideally in home. And really having the right stimulus material is what will make a probably the biggest difference. If you're at the very early stages and the product doesn't exist yet, the chances are there are reference products out there that you can get hold of and place to still get some meaningful feedback on. So, for instance, if you're thinking about launching, I don't know, a new hair product, but you haven't made yours yet, but you know there are some pretty good competitors out there doing something similar, or maybe in another category, a format that is similar, then there's no harm in getting hold of those and placing them with people. And then if you are further down the line, then you definitely want to get prototypes into people's hands. And then if you're very near launch, then it's very much at that point, probably about fine tuning. Again, you should be well past the point of screening, so you shouldn't have lots of prototypes. Maybe you only really have one or two. And actually doing any of this unbranded is an even better idea. If you can place unbranded prototypes with people, you get a kind of pure read on the experience and the benefits. And then it's always great practice to reveal who the brand is, if the brand is currently in existence, because then you get a whole nother level of response, which might be, wow, I like it even more now I know it's so-and-so, or gosh, that was really dreadful and I wouldn't expect that of that brand, you know, and, and, and so on. And how about advice around asking the right questions? There is a whole load of best practice around interviewing. So, you know, not asking lots of direct questions, not asking why, even though we want to know why, giving people time to talk, not interrupting. Because why is one of those questions that can feel like a criticism and that can work on loads of different levels. So it might imply that the other person hasn't explained themselves very well or perhaps they're doing something a bit strange or it makes someone very rational when the actual why could be something very emotional or they could be in a state of tension or conflict. People do mean what they say and they do say what they mean, but that doesn't go on all the time. So you've got to be a bit more sophisticated about getting to the bottom of it. All of this is so helpful and will really be useful for brands looking to make a start on research in-house. But companies often hire, you know, market research consultants or agencies to handle this kind of qualitative research. What can those kinds of experts help with? Guiding a conversation so that you draw the best out of somebody comes with a lot of experience and training and it's not something that you could necessarily just kind of muddle along with or or kind of, you know, breeze through. And then finally, off the back of great moderation, you need really sound analysis. So you need 
somebody who's got time and ideally training to be able to understand the data that's been generated and do something with it that is meaningful but also actionable so you don't just want a ton of reportage you know often in qualitative research people are can contradict themselves or there's a lot that's unsaid especially if they're uncomfortable about something or not that experienced people hate admitting what they don't know or haven't understood or aren't good at so a trained qual researcher in the analysis will tease all that stuff out and make the right comparisons and probably draw on a lot of other experience from other categories and maybe even other disciplines to help you really get the most out of that work so I think you can get quite far probably in-house if you're not too ambitious about the scope but I would consider whether you have the time and availability and skills to get internally to get the most out of the data that you generate or whether really it is best to leave that in the hands of someone you know a bit more expert. So we've heard from Lucy about what best practice around qualitative user research looks like. Now we're going to hear how a couple of brands actually used user research to inform their product insights. Here's Katie Marshall, VP and General Manager of Pattern, an early stage direct-to-consumer company with a portfolio of home goods brands. Katie's going to take us through how Pattern used user research to develop products for its new cookware range, Equal Parts. Our brand development process typically starts with looking at the broad categories in the market that we're interested in. So we have a thesis around the home and the fact that millennials, as we grow and mature and start to settle down, are spending more time at home. And that was actually a thesis we had that predated COVID, but certainly has become even more true through COVID. So based on those sort of categories and hypotheses, we then go and we do a lot of qualitative research to really speak to folks about those categories understand how people are using them and working with them, start to develop some hypotheses around pain points that folks are experiencing. Then we start to develop sort of hypotheses for the types of solutions or products or services that we could bring to market around our sort of top hypotheses, bring those back to consumers and do a quick round of testing to understand how much appeal there is in the market for those ideas. And then from there, we really start to build product briefs and go into the actual product development and brand development process for the lead idea. So what does qualitative research look like at Equal Parts? Typically, we'll start with a combination of focus groups and one-on-one interviews. But I'm a big believer in actually like observed research versus self-reported. So I'd always rather look at what are people doing versus what they say they're going to do. Because we all say we're going to do lots of things that we don't necessarily do in practice, right? Like I say I'm going to work out five days a week and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Pre-COVID, we would do a lot of ethnographies. So actually going into people's homes, watching them cook, watching them organize a room. Ethnographic research is all about observing and studying people in their real life environment, like their home. We've actually, through COVID, done some of those digitally where we'll have folks take self videos of you know cooking a meal and send us the video of them cooking a meal and we can see where they're organizing all of their cookware which tools they're using the most etc and getting sort of that unfiltered view without necessarily having to be there in person how do you find people to interview or have focus groups with we typically start by finding like second order connections so we try to look for friends of friends or people who maybe aren't as close to what pattern is the work that we're doing, probably aren't aware and don't have any personal relationship to me. So there's no sort of confirmation bias where they're just trying to, you know, validate my ideas. Confirmation bias is when people give more weight to evidence that supports pre-existing beliefs or values. They're really sort of objective and new to the process. And those folks are great because they're typically 
easy to source where you just need to find like a couple of close connections who can point you in the right direction and free. Any tips for asking the right questions or what kinds of things to look out for when observing? It's always helpful whenever you're going into research to have a set of hypotheses that you're validating against because that way you already are sort of focused on a set of questions or assumptions that you're looking for. And then typically as I'm watching people, like I just take a lot of notes. I try to ask open questions versus closed questions. So instead of saying, you know, are there any pain points in the cooking process? That's a yes, no answer. People can easily say, oh no, it's generally fine. And then that doesn't leave you with a lot of opportunities to sort of drill down as an interviewer. But, you know, you could say, what are the things that could be better about cooking dinner at home? Then you're sort of opening up the respondent's like head into saying, okay, what are all the different things that do bother me about cooking at home? And you're leading them down the path to sort of open up. It's a very subtle wording shift, but I've found that it makes a big difference. Can you give an example of how some user research that you did, you know, influenced the product that you ended up creating? We developed the new cookware through COVID. So... We did one or two rounds of early focus groups and in-person sessions in like January, February, and then everything shifted fully online. But one thing we learned, we did video interviews with probably a dozen sort of second order friends of friends and asked them to basically cook a meal in their apartment and video it for us. And one thing we noticed was that almost all of them stored one piece of cookware at least on their countertop before they were even cooking a meal. That they typically were just leaving something out on the stove And there were really two reasons for that. One was like, apartments are small and storage is a real sticking point for a lot of us. So, you know, having a big Dutch oven or a big pot is like, you know, takes up a lot of real estate. And the second reason is that, you know, for people who had invested in nice cookware, they really wanted that cookware to be something that was also on display. It was, you know, considered part of their decor. It could be a status piece and something that also could open up conversations with friends So that was something that we took away very early in the design process and said, okay, this cookware really needs to be something that not only does the job really well, but can live really beautifully and can be something that someone's proud to display on a countertop because that's something that we know our customer is already doing and looking for in their purchase. How do you know when to use insights from user research and when to rely on your gut instincts instead? I think sometimes in user research, we conflate customers' needs, the outcomes that they're looking for, and the solutions to solve them. And this is why. You know, I think it's very important to understand how customers are behaving, what's missing, what are the areas that they're not as satisfied with in whatever category or sort of behavior you're observing. I think where you have to sort of put the pencil down on the research is when, you know, customers veer into the territory of starting to identify solutions, because that's really where you come into play, right? They're sort of constrained by what's obvious in the world around them, and they're not typically trained marketers or trained innovators. And so, you know, I think it's very important to understand their needs, understand their pain points and, you know, areas of opportunity, and then put the pencil down and go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what could be all of the possible solutions against that? That's work that I think is is actually probably not customer-facing work. It's primarily internal work where you're ideating and pushing the boundaries of what's imaginable, right? Finally, how do you weigh up qualitative research methods against quantitative ones? They have their sort of roles to play at different stages of the process. So qualitative, I think, is extremely valuable to sort of open things up and explore, especially at the beginning of a process. I think it's always helpful to start with qual. Um, And that's really where you can get sort of the true behavioral insights about how people act, how they feel, what are their workarounds in a process, 
et cetera. I think quant is, is really helpful, you know, once you're in a process already with a set of hypotheses to get significant levels of validation against a insight. So, you know, if you go through qual and if we take our example about design focused cookware, so you go through qual, we see that people are displaying their cookware on a counter. They say, okay, this has to look really beautiful. Now I have to go and design against that. And I'll have four or five options maybe that come out of that design process, then I want to put that into quant because I want to get a significant perspective of, you know, with a real reasonable sample of people, which of these options is preferred. That gives me much more sort of confidence in my solution versus just going back and asking five people, right? So that's where I like to use quant is once you've sort of opened things up with qual, you're honing in on solutions, then let's get rigor and data behind those solutions to be able to get confidence in our decision making. I also like it for you know, things like pricing, where you're looking to get sort of a discrete answer with reasonable confidence, quant is always more helpful for that. So, you know, they really think that a robust research process always has a variety of both. Now, here's Ben Witt, founder of wellness and lifestyle brand Recess. Recess's first product is a line of flavored sparkling water infused with CBD. Though Ben didn't do any formal focus groups to support the development process, product is really rooted in observations about a need that could be met. And Recess uses social engagement data to understand what's resonating with its customers. So I kind of came up with the idea for Recess three years ago. I'd seen kind of CBD oil bubbling up on the periphery, as well as other kind of compounds that help you relax and and feel calm. And basically had the insight that they would serve as the base of a new category of products focused on helping people relax as opposed to, you know, caffeine, which helps people feel stimulated and alcohol, which helps people feel intoxicated. I really think there's a, a new massive category of products and experiences that consumers are going to use to kind of optimize their mentality. What kinds of observations led you to that hunch or key insight? So it's interesting, like it was mostly, I'd say, looking at the world and asking why a lot, not asking people. And what I observed was that when new kind of categories emerge, they're typically correlated to something broader happening in society. And they really are a reflection of the zeitgeist of that time, right? So like the rise of energy drinks and coffee over the past 20 years was really a reflection of this kind of growth at all costs mentality. The rise of plant based meat and dairy is really a reflection of like environmentalism and people caring about the world and the the earth and like making sure that the products that they consume are sustainable. And what I think CBD is a reflection of is that is people's inability to kind of deal with the transformational times that we're living in. So what was the solution you developed to that problem or, you know, the need that you identified? You know, the early part of recess was really been up until now has been focused on really creating a new usage occasion in people's lives that they didn't know they needed, which was taking a recess, taking a moment throughout your day to reset and rebalance so you can be your most productive and creative self, defining the feeling, calm, cool, collected, not tired, not wired, you know, an antidote to modern times. It's how you wish the two o'clock coffee made you feel, right? People need to understand where your brand, you know, fits into their life and kind of what they're supposed to feel. You know, and how are you able to tell that, you know, your idea landed and your brand really resonates with people the way you wanted it to? Where we get all of our insights from are like how our community is 
using the product and their connection to the brand and our content. And so we're always about like, you know, what do we want someone to feel when they drink a recess? It's thoughtful, it's clever, it's creative, it's introspective, it's inspired. And so we want our content to reflect that too. And we determine if that's working, you know, through it's engagement, right? And that's not just likes, but I think shares are actually the most important, right? And, you know, our posts get shared hundreds of times, sometimes thousands of times. And so, you know, with our Instagram content, for example, that the most important, you know, metric we track is like how often like a post is getting shared and saved, right? Because that's really a reflection of, I think it's value. Are there any examples of how social engagement data has helped inform your business? Where I get all our consumer insights, like bringing this to like what you're focused on is through Instagram and seeing how people share recess, right? People share recess a lot, right? And the things I saw early on is just like one, the number of usage occasions throughout their day that people would use the product. So there's a large group of people that drink it, you know, right in the evenings instead of alcohol. There's a large group of people that also drink it during the day while they're working to focus. There's a large group that drinks it before bed. A lot of people drink it right when they get up in the morning to start their day calm. And so like, I was like, whoa, like I didn't even consider that. Like, that's interesting. Like no one's going to drink coffee or an energy drink before they go to bed, right? That's very much a single defined use case. But with recess, it's kind of all of the above. I didn't think about that, right? That's an interesting thing. And like, we should probably, that means the addressable market's huge. The total addressable market is a calculation that shows the maximum potential size of the market for a product or service if there were no other competitors and everyone in the market could be reached. Your total addressable market for a CPG brand is really a function of, you know, what are the usage occasions in the day? You know, someone might use it times like what are the points of distribution? It makes sense to be sold. And I just thought, wow, like there's a lot of different forms of taking a recess that are already happening with this one product. Like there's a lot more recesses we can make in the future. Thanks so much to Lucy, Katie and Ben for their incredible insight. For more tips on conducting user research, head to MailChimp.com courier for our step-by-step guide. And now, here's Duncan to summarize key takeaways from today's show. Number one, qualitative research and quantitative research both have a role to play in product development. Usually it makes sense to start with qualitative research to explore ideas, and then use quantitative research later on to test reactions. Number two, when it comes to qualitative, observational research is incredibly valuable. See if you can watch people using a product or doing an activity so you can get an unbiased view of what they do. And number three, it's important to invest time into developing a thoughtful research process so you're set up to make the most of any insights you might uncover. That's it for today. If you do have any ideas or feedback for us, get in touch at workshop at couriermedia.co. That's it for today. If you have any ideas or feedback for us, get in touch at workshop at couriermedia.co. We're back in two weeks. See you then.